Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. As much of the UK begins to return to a semblance of normality, performing arts venues remain closed, affecting not just the work of How To Academy, but a huge swathe of our creative industries. To celebrate their contribution to the nation as a whole, this week's podcast is a masterclass with Richard Eyre, former director of the National Theatre. A long time ago, in what feels now like another world entirely, Matthew Stadlin and I went to visit him at home to learn more about the art of directing. So Richard A, you're famous for so many things, it's very difficult to know where to begin. You're a theatre director, you're a film director, you're a TV director, you're a director of musicals and a director of opera. Let's begin with theatre. Is there a key to being a great theatre director? And if not, what has been the key to your success as a theatre director? I don't think there's a key to being a success at anything. I think if you're a success, it's because you're good at what you do. How you get good at what you do is different for everybody. I started as an actor and I was so critical of my own performances as an actor that I became paralysed. I would become literally catatonic on stage And I thought, this is telling me something. And what it's telling me is is that I can't go on doing this. I can't go on expecting the public to pay to see somebody suffering from their own inadequacies. I was very, very lucky to have an opportunity to start directing because I was in a, a, a show and I persuaded some of the actors in that show to do a Sunday night production and asked the permission of the the director of the theatre could stage this, and we did. And quite a few people came to see that I got offered work out of that production. And the vicious circle for a director is, is how do you demonstrate that you have a capacity to direct without being offered a production? And so directors have to manufacture their own work. They have to be the authors of, of, of their own invention. And I started like that. And obviously I had some kind of knowledge of, of acting or probably as useful knowledge of not acting or how not to do it. And I had a, a, a tremendous sympathy with actors. So I was able to talk to actors in a language that they understood. And I suppose if there was a natural ability that I discovered that I I hadn't been aware of before that, because I'd only ever directed a short, silent film, it was to be able to choreograph, to, to use space and to be able to move people around in a space in an expressive fashion. And how do you, I mean, you've already answered so many of the follow-up questions I was going to ask, but how do you direct on stage? Do you direct collaboratively in any way? Do you direct by diktat? I mean, different directors have different ways of doing it. I don't direct by diktat. I don't direct by concept. I'm not a devotee of regie theatre, which is, you know, the 
German, well, it's not exclusively German, but the variety of, of theatre where a director imposes their conceit um, in both senses of the word on the production. I work from the inside outwards. Uh, what I do, the, I'll tell you how I start. I started a, a rehearsal three days ago for a new production. This is talk a Noel Coward play. Yes, this is Bly Spirit. I'll talk a bit about the play. And what I said about this play is, yes, it's a comedy. He describes it as an improbable farce, but we should take it seriously. By which I meant, don't think that the mechanics of farce are what's going to make this funny. What's going to make it funny is if you believe in these people getting in this improbable, these improbable situations. Uh, and then I would spend, and I, I did spend two days sitting around the table with the actors and absolutely uh, democratic. So everyone has an opportunity to speak. And I will sometimes say, well, what, what do you think about this? Sometimes, I suppose, be a bit disingenuous and say, I, I really... What is going on here? I don't understand. And then people will come into the, the vacuum and say, what I think is going on here. And then I, you get a discussion going. Now, some directors think you have to play sort of adult games or childlike games and you have to do exercises. And I, for me, it's just like creating a the social circumstances in which everybody feels they can contribute to the production so that they have some kind of, of, uh, of possession, some kind of authority, uh, particularly over their own parts, but some kind of part, uh, they're part of the whole. The aim being that the, the job of the director is to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. So you're a facilitator. I'm a facilitator, but at the same time, I'm also saying, look, here's what I think. I'm nudging, yes. you say. Uh, I'm but, saying... But, but gently, not, not, not in a heavy-handed way. Uh, I think, it, well, it is gentle, yes. I mean, in the case of this play, which is a farce about a writer who organise gets a spiritualist, a medium, in order to his house to hold a seance, in order that uh, he can pick up some material for his new novel. And in the course of it, the spiritualist medium summons the spirit of his ex-wife. And he's you had a first scene where the, the current wife, you see that the, the relationship is somewhat barbed. And what's it about? Well, it's about sexual obsession. It's about grief. It's about a man who cannot forget a woman who he was desperately in love with, who was young and very sexy, and they had a very strong sexual relationship. His current wife, it's, it's a rather arid relationship. So you start to think, I will just say, well, that's, that's what I think is going on in the play, and let the actors take off. Jennifer Saunders is starring in this production. She is. You've worked with huge names, including Judy Dench, Liam Neeson, many others. 
how differently, if at all, do you treat the superstar in order to get the best out of them, but also their fellow cast members? I don't know that it's differently. I mean, I have a huge respect for Jennifer Saunders is brilliant. This isn't propaganda. She is absolutely brilliant. It's obvious why she's been so successful, in other words. It is completely obvious. She's highly intelligent and she's very truthful. She doesn't put on funny voices and uh, pull faces. She's very truthful. And that's I, I've remarked that characteristic in all her work. So I don't, you know, there's not a sort of hierarchy of respect. And I try and treat everybody, I wouldn't say treat everybody the same, but I treat everybody differently because everybody is different. And you can't sort of apply a sort of, a blanket attitude to every person. So you have a different relationship with each of the actors. If we're talking very generally, we step back from Jennifer and talk generally about the big names that you've worked with. It's not as though you you treat them with kid gloves. It's not as though you have to massage their egos necessarily. Do you, do you very much still feel as the director that you are in charge? Well, I am in charge. <laughs> I mean, let's take the, uh, the last film that I made was a film of King Lear with Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson and Emily Watson and Jim Broadbent was in it. Andrew Scott was in it. Well, you know, a lot of household names. Um, I'm not... I'm in charge, yes. <laughs> I've, I've, I've invited them to um, be part of my project. And actually, of course, uh, Tony Hopkins is the magnet because they all want to work with... I mean, Christopher Eccleston actually wrote to me and said, could I possibly play any part in your film of King Lear? Because I've, it's a lifetime ambition of mine to work with Tony Hopkins. And so I said, yes, his part... So they all, you know, they worship Tony and I'm the sort of, I'm the enabler. But at the same time, if you say in charge, it's my adaptation. I'm behind the camera. I am very clear what I want. And all they want, these very gifted people, is to be guided. What is it you want? I see. Got it. Okay. But you also, you also, yes, I was going to say, you give them enough space as well to bring their own qualities to it. Yeah, you have to. Otherwise, you know, what is the point of getting these hugely gifted and and disparate characters? What is the point of employing them if you're not going to try and and, uh, act as a sort of poultice and bring out the thing that makes them so idiosyncratic and individual and and extraordinary. Give us a bit more of a sense of the mechanics of how it works preparing for a play. So will you audition people in the first place before you get to that point where you're sitting around the table you've already discussed? How long does the preparation take? How long do rehearsals take in total? How much time do you devote to it? How much time do you spend before you even meet the cast, before you even before you even start auditioning people? How much time do you spend with the text, getting to know it yourself? Give us a sense of the process from seed to bloom. Um, I'm trying to 
remember when the idea was mooted, probably September of last year. And we're now in mid-May. Uh, we're now in mid-May. So I had been talking to Danny Moore, who is the, the who runs the Theatre Royal Bath, about doing a play there. Because I live near Bath. And um, so it's very handy. And I wanted to do a comedy. And, and between the two of us, we came up with the idea of doing Blythe Spirit. He said, I think we can attract somebody really wonderful to play Madame Arcati. Uh, I rang a very famous older actress who said, uh, yes, I like the part, but I don't want to do it. Then um, we went through a list of possible people. We both said, wouldn't Jennifer Saunders be absolutely wonderful uh, in that part? Asked her agent, yes, she was free. Would she like to do it? Yes. So job done. We got Jennifer and then started to cast it. And everyone in the cast I had worked with except for the person playing the maid. So we interviewed several people and I cast the actors playing the maid. Uh, so that would take us up to about January, February, I guess. No, may, maybe even later. Maybe it wasn't fully cast until March. But in order to know who you want for which part, presumably you already knew the play very well. I knew the play before, but then I have to just read it and read it and right. read it and read it and start working with the designer. And that happens... Um, the designer, Anthony Ward, I've worked with many, many times before. And I guess we started talking about it soon after I'd committed to doing the production. Because so, the visual side of things is obviously essential as well. And not least in your capacity as an opera director, which we'll come to. But the rehearsals themselves, how long do they take? The rehearsals are four weeks in a rehearsal room, then a week in the theatre, so it opens at the end of the week, it starts previewing the end of the week in the theatre, and then in this sixth week, it would open to the press. And at what point do you feel job done? Um, when can you let go, or do you continue to give notes really, throughout the, the run? I, I think by the time it opens, it's not going to come together. If it hasn't come together by then, it'll never come together. Uh, and by the time it opens, the actors should be, it's their machine. They should be in charge. They should be driving the car. In the case of, of Blythe Spirit, it's a little like a musical in the sense it's technically quite complicated. But have you ever, Richard, been in the middle of a run and suddenly had an a, epiphany moment where you think to yourself, actually, that's not quite right. I should have asked him or her to do it that way, or they are still aren't quite getting it. And then do you call up the actor or actress and say, ah, oh, what, what about this? No, I'd go, I'd go in and have a rehearsal. Another, an extra rehearsal? Yeah. I mean, I, I try and see shows every two, three weeks. I have an associate who will cover the show, let me know if how it's going. And I might go in and say, you know, do you mind coming in early tomorrow 
and we'll spend a couple of hours because I don't think that scene is quite right. And the reason it's not quite right is because I think I've not directed it properly or it's not staged properly or I just think we've collectively just made a mistake with that scene. And that does happen, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a strong, a visual sense, to come back to that, of how you want a play to be as you do how you want it to be acted? I have a sense, starting off, which is like uh, a sort of ectoplasm. It's without shape. But I have a sort of smell and what whatever the visual equivalent of a of a sniff of a smell of how it's got to be and how it's not got to be and for me the 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 dialogue with the the designer is one of the most enjoyable and exciting parts because you're exchanging ideas you're looking at photographs you're looking at paintings you're you're talking through, uh, in the case of this, I said, I don't want it to be a Noel Cowardish world, a neoclassical world, you know, with a Georgian house with, you know, Adam ceiling. And we looked at photographs of old productions and said, oh, no, we don't want that. And then we were talking about Noel Coward and the play is set in a house in... Kent, and he said, oh, well, Noel Coward, didn't Noel Coward live in a house in Kent? We looked at Noel Coward's house, and of course, it's not at all um, fancy. It's a converted, there's, there's a, uh, it's sort of red brick, there's a converted barn. And then we thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if this is the house of a writer, if it is in a converted barn? So you've got a, you've got a rather nice wooden roof, and it's spacious and it's a writer's place. It's been his way. He's been with his first wife and his first wife died there. And it's very much his place. And it sort of developed from that. And Do you get as excited about how a play looks as you do about how a TV show looks or how a film looks? Is it as important? Oh, it, it's as important. Oh, sure. But I mean, with a, with a, with a, uh, a film, because it's you're you're taking it piece by piece. It's not, you know, with, with theatre you create a world and you create your little universe in which the the actors are going to perform. A film is much more literal, um, so you can create an imaginative world in the theatre. Theatre is all about metaphor. It's all about you know pretending we sit there in the auditorium we know it's not we know it's a play we know it's all but we have to work fake. harder to suspend yeah, the disbelief we, don't we yeah it's it's a contract between the performers and the audience you agree to suspend your belief because of course you're interrupting the play quite a lot with well not a, not not well, a, play, a play but in an opera you're interrupting it with applause with, or, and yes, you, you are taking part in the, in in the breaking of that suspension of disbelief as the audience you are and in a comedy in the theatre right. you're you hope you're interrupting yeah. it with laughter, laughter yeah. which is an extraordinary idea and laughter that the actors are somehow not aware of yes. um, uh, with film, film is very is ferociously literal. 
you know, if you have a scene set in a street, you know. It has to be a, in a street. It's a street. A street is a street is a street. And so the designer was often selecting your street. Or if you're shooting in the studio, you've got to build your street. But it's it's not metaphor. But are you all. consciously setting out as a film director now to, to create an atmosphere? Yeah. With, with the with, oh, with sure. set, whether that's it, whether that's in a studio or not. Oh, of, of course. Of course you are. And uh, let's say The Children Act, which is a film I did um, two years ago with Emma Thompson. We had an apartment, a room in an apartment that was built in the studio. And it was very, very precise in the atmosphere and the selection of objects. Each object had a story to tell or an aspect of, of the character of the people who inhabited that house. So it was, uh, it was very, very fastidiously chosen. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Let's step back just for a moment and, and compare in your mind the, the, the sort of what, what are the key differences between being a film director and a theatre director? Be beyond the obvious, in, in terms of your role and your input and what you're trying to get out of it. In a sense, there couldn't be more different. Uh, in the, do you still think of yourself as doing roughly the same job, or do you say, no, okay, for these few months I'm doing something completely different? I might as well be being a policeman or a barrister or a football player. I mean, how different is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is. Um, I wouldn't say a barrister, football player. Uh, it, <laughs> it's completely different because what you're doing with a with a play, it's all you're presenting a world. You're putting a consistent world on a stage and uh, you're going to play to a live audience and and um, involve them in this contract of suspending disbelief. And it grows organically over a period of several weeks. With a film, it's very rare to rehearse a great deal, although I like to rehearse with the actors so that I get, so that they have a sense of, of what... I'm after when we start shooting. But you're shooting in fragments and you're achieving, let's say, two minutes, three minutes, a fragment of two or three minutes of the kaleidoscopic whole each day. And you have so many choices you don't have in the theatre. Where are you going to put the camera? You know, are you going to show them in the context of where they are? Are you going to show them close up are you going to show them very close up so that you can examine almost the the, the change in an eyelid uh, is the camera going to be looking at the speaker are you I mean the, my first experience of film I was rehearsing a scene and I said to the cameraman here's here's the scene and he walked around the back of the actors and beckoned me and 
he just said, it's more interesting from here. And I said, of course, there's no obligation to be looking in front of the actors and sometimes being behind them, actors behind their heads, you know, and you've got, you can move the camera so you're moving away from an actor or towards an actor or you can have a group of people and move the camera so that you single out somebody. In. There's an almost infinity of permutations let alone this is even before you start editing, where you're making choices of... No, we're not in the theatre, you're tending to look at the person who's speaking. Your eye goes to the person who's, who's speaking, and that's, that's the dynamic of theatre, unless you really set it up in a way which is, is quite difficult to do, where you isolate an actor and you're asking the audience to look at the actor who isn't speaking. But uh, whereas in film, you're, I wouldn't say invariably, but so often you don't want to be looking at the person who's speaking. You want to be looking at the person who's reacting. And is it more of a team game working in film from the point of view of the creative direction of how you're doing it because you've got a director of photography you, you've got the producer who might be more involved I imagine than in a in a play does it feel in that sense more collaborative in terms of the direction yes it is more collaborative um but do you enjoy bouncing ideas off the director of photography do you trust your yes, cameramen and women and I, I I I do very much that relationship is a very strong one and um it's quite hard to share that. And sometimes producers are a sort of quasi-directors uh, and have very, very strong ideas. And, um, I, you know, I've worked with producers and said at some why why don't you direct? Not, why don't you direct this, but why don't you... Because they have so much to say about it and, and think about it and feel it. And it's just that what I do is different. But, you know, yes, it's collaborative, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, look at Roma, who, you know, wrote the script, chose all the locations, filmed it and edited it. And won an Oscar? And won an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Just tell me in terms of the integrity of the, I suppose, the whole, the continuity, you talked about filming in fragments. How do you manage that honesty of performance from your actors, from your cast, when you might be filming things out of sequence? How do you create a momentum, an emotional momentum to the story? Well, that's, that's very much a collaboration between you and the actor. And sometimes, I mean... Most experienced actors are meticulous about charting. Where am I in the story? Right. And I can imagine it's not easy. It's not easy, but they get very, very good at it. Right. And you know, and you're you, aware of it. You, you, you are acutely aware in each scene, even though you've shot it out of sequence, yeah. of what you oh, want from uh, your of team. Of course, and uh, uh, that's absolutely essential. Homework. You know, you can't arrive on set and say, uh, where, tell me where this scene comes. I mean, forget it. That's That would be grotesquely incompetent. Is there a film that you feel is closest to what you wanted to achieve as a director? Iris or Notes on a Scandal? Um, well, Iris was very much my It's personal, film. wasn't it? 
Notes on the Scandal worked out very, very well. Wasn't an easy... I mean, that's a case of really, really strong producer who had a lot of really strong ideas. And, and, and a top actress in Kate Blanchett. Uh, Kate and, and Judy Dench. And Judy, of course. And it was quite, you know, the subject matter, um, you know, 36-year-old woman shagging 16-year-old boy was... But I, I, I was pleased with the way it turned out. But there was something very personal about Iris, wasn't there? Because you brought your experience of your mother's dementia into it. Yes, I I did. Although it um, it came that came more in detail than a moment when, when Judy Dench couldn't remember whether she was going in or or yes. retreating, going which way she was going into a door. That's that, through a doorway. Was was my mother the first time I I was absolutely certain my mother had Alzheimer's when I opened a door for her and she said, "Which side do I go?" And that begs the wider question of to what extent you put yourself into your work, not just in film, but in musicals, in in opera, in in, in television and theatre. How how deeply, maybe this is a sort of facile and obvious question to answer, but how how deeply do you put your own experiences into it? A hundred percent. Yeah. And does that mean that your work becomes richer the older you get? Yes, I think so. Uh, but it is a hundred percent. All the decisions, uh, you know, the way I inform every aspect of the work is derived from my experience and my personality. And um, I'm able, the older I get, to deal with it better and more productively. Can you imagine ever retiring? No, why? Why <laughs> no, would I'm not I... suggesting you do. But it's an interesting thing about conductors and directors that they can go on and on and on. I mean, you're only in your mid seventies. But Sir Peter Hall was directing into his eighties. Conductors conduct into their nineties. Yes, they have a lot of upper body movement. They do, and a lot of conductors have a continue a lot of lower body movement too. But um, the yeah, I mean, it is you've got to keep active and. You know, I'm just off to rehearse now. And I really, you know, my heart is beating slightly quicker. The anticipation of being in a room full with some very, very bright actors. This brings us finally to music. You've directed many operas, Carmen, I think, of Marriage of Figaro and others too but in a way I sensed from speaking to you before that your great passion surprisingly to me as someone who isn't a fan of that particular genre is musicals yeah I love musicals um but selectively uh and it just about uh, is it your great passion it's not really a great passion but you you have encyclopedic knowledge of them don't you I, I I do, and I, I've done quite a few musicals, but I slightly, it's a slightly sort of gamey genre. And, you know, for me, there are kind of half a dozen great musicals. And Guys of Dolls, Guys, Guys of Dolls, Dolls amongst them. Yeah, Guys of Dolls very much uh, amongst them. Um, I love doing Mary Poppins, and that was 15, 16 years ago. And thank God it's being revived this year. 
autumn. So um, I'm but, a very happy man. But then opera is a superior medium for you, is it? Actually, it's not superior. I mean, the music... Does it touch bits of you that, that, that yeah, the musicals don't? The, I mean, surely... Look, The Marriage of Figaro is one of the greatest pieces of uh, creative writing, uh, uh, I mean, of making, of theatre making, of music making, uh, of um, passion. I mean, it's a musical about sex, Marriage of Figaro. It is, the music is among the greatest music ever written. And, and that's uh, saying something given that you've also directed La Traviata. It's, it's a greater opera. Traviata is fantastic. Great but, fun, but not... Well, I wouldn't say fun. Well, no, but, not at the, by no, the end. It, it's, it's deeply tragic. I mean, it's I very, pretty very, much cry yeah. every time I go. But the, the music is perhaps the music just a is, step off. The, the Marriage of Figaro is is matchless. It's as greater. It's the greatest opera. Greater than Fidelia. Oh God, much better. <laughs> I, I I don't buy Fidelia. Do you not? No, I, I even I the like moment the when the prisoners come in. No, I, I I really don't. It's sort of. Um, the, the, the bigger question, the bigger question, rather than which is the greater opera for me, in, in talking to you in this masterclass, and my penultimate question really is: Is there a sense in which opera just brings together the different senses in a way that even film doesn't? No, of course, you have no, the music in film. No, no, with opera, you've got the stage. No, music, I don't. You've got the I acting, don't buy you've that. Got the singing, you've no. got the music. No, no, no. It's 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 a specious argument that. I've heard people say, oh, because it brings it all together, it's the greatest art form. It's nonsense. It's not. It's not. But, you know, you can have some massively wonderful experiences. I mean, for me, having done three, three of the operas I've done are the greatest operas ever written, Carmen, Marriage of Figaro and La Traviata. And you can have some absolutely... Heartrending and and mind expanding experiences, but I don't buy that um, because it all comes together. You know, you've got acting, singing, composing. So when do you feel? When do you feel that moment of this is really it? I am now Sir Richard Eyre in my element. I I feel fulfilled. I feel creatively challenged. I feel inspired. I feel happy. I feel excited. In all of these different outlets, all these different media, which do you think is the moment when you really, really are there? Um, I suppose when I've had a few drinks on an opening night, but I never really, if there was that moment of um, a sort of transcendent achievement, I wouldn't need to go on working but I've I never feel job done I never feel oh I see now that's I've made my statement now I will go and you know sit on the beach final question top tip to a budding director in whichever medium oh just persevere persevere but um it's all in the detail Everything is in the... And the thing that marks out, always distinguishes good art from bad art, is that bad art is generalised and good art is specific. 
you've got to rush off to rehearsals. We didn't have a chance to talk about the National Theatre in any great detail. We didn't talk about the greatest thing I've ever seen on stage, your 1997 edition of performance of King Lear, where Ian Holm, who'd had stage fright, I think, for about 18 years, went naked as King Lear in the storm scene. It's one of the most extraordinary, well, it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen on stage. So you're a hero of mine. I'm sure you're a hero to many. Thank you for inviting us into your living room in London. Thank you, Matt. This week's podcast starred Richard Eyre and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in to our live streams every night of the week at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.